Every month we take one Sunday uh, to preach and teach into our church's vision, which is to experience all of Christ in all of life for all the world. And so today we're going to see how the reign of Jesus Christ affects how we interact as a church family. His lordship is over all, is over our uh, work life, our family life, our, our own hearts, our role in the community, and also as a church. And because Jesus is Lord of all of our life, he is also Lord over how we interact as the family of God. A few weeks ago, our missionaries to Venezuela, uh, Rocky and Sylvia Engel, uh, Rocky exhorted us uh, out of Hebrews 10 to carefully consider how we might spur one another on to love and good works. Do you remember that? Uh, a helpful um, season and time in our church. Uh, but one of the ways we must carefully consider how to do this is how we can lovingly intervene for a brother or sister who goes off track. Love occasionally demands correction and even discipline. Whether it's a family in the home or a coach uh, in the middle of a practice with a sports team or fellow Christians within the church family, love demands a correction. And so the church practices discipline as a way of imitating the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. Listen to Hebrews 12, which also actually quotes our church-wide memory verse for the month out of Proverbs 3. Here's what Hebrews 12 says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, this is where he quotes Proverbs, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary and reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen to that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12 is saying that God's discipline is actually proof of his love for us. That it's an investing kind of move on his part. And so the discipline of the church is to be evidence of its loving investment in others. And so Jesus has taught us things about how to fight for one another's purity and holiness because he understands how destructive sin is and how frail we humans are. After all, he has firsthand knowledge of both, right? This is why in Hebrews 3, 12, uh, we're instructed in this way. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of skin of sin. So what do we do when we, going back to Rocky's sermon, Hebrews 10, what do we do when we try to spur one another on, when we try to provoke holiness and, and good works in the life of another person, but they remain stuck? 
What does the church do with the person who has a hardened heart? Does Jesus have anything to say in how we persist in love for each other when that love is not necessarily welcome? Well, before we jump into our text, we need to know that this is going to sound very odd to the world, and maybe it sounds very odd to you sitting here. Um, Discipline is a popular idea as long as it's like personal discipline, right? Who doesn't want more of that? Or parental discipline, we kind of all acknowledge, even though kids groan under it a little bit, that it's a good thing. Even spiritual discipline, kind of in our culture's view, is probably a good thing because religion is viewed as this kind of context for self-expression and self-discovery and these things. But the more institutional you get with discipline, the less our culture applauds it. And so whether it's discipline in the classroom or discipline amongst police or amongst uh, people in authority, the more resistant our culture is. But perhaps the strongest cultural disgust for institutional discipline is found probably in the church. As soon as there is a sense of kind of an enforced morality or a, a standard that's outside of the individual person, our culture, I think, just pictures like nuns shaking their head and wagging their fingers and that kind of thing. That's where our culture goes. Our culture denies that truth is objective and outside of us. And that results in this paranoia about how we are to judge one another. Because if if truth is inside of us only, then what business do we have doing correcting one another? But see, the world is in this impossible dilemma. Because on the one hand, it will say to us that, that the, the church is full of hypocrites. But then on the other hand, it will, will say, but we shouldn't judge one another, which would actually help to prevent hypocrisy. And so the world is in this impossible spot of saying hypocrisy is bad, but judgments are bad too. Discipline is, uh, you know, when you think about it, you might be think about going to the principal's office and which I now recognize is not always a bad thing either. Sorry, Wendy, and other principals who are here. Um, you can have a good trip to the principal's office, but sometimes when we think of discipline, we just think in terms of negative uh, things, and that's it. But discipline is, is a kind of the full spectrum in the church. Discipline is happening right now in a formative way, in a positive sense. We're positively teaching about what the Scriptures say about a certain subject. That's a form of discipline. It's a more positive sense. But there is the corrective side to discipline, and that's actually what our passage is more focused on. Listen to Jonathan Lehman. He says, What would you think of a coach who instructs his players but never drills them? Or a math teacher who explains the lesson but never corrects her students' mistakes? Or a doctor who talks about health but ignores cancer? You would probably say that all of them are doing half their job. Athletic training requires instructing and drilling. Teaching requires explaining and correcting. Doctoring requires encouraging health and fighting disease, right? Okay, what would you think about a church that teaches and disciples but doesn't practice church discipline? Making disciples without discipline makes as much sense as a doctor who ignores tumors. Now, fortunately, our, the background of our church and, um, and being a merge of just a few years ago, both previous churches have taught on this topic and are, we're guessing there's a vague familiarity with what we mean by church discipline. But we wanted to make sure that redemption sees why and how the church of Christ should practice 
discipline. And we're going to do that by listening to his voice. Let him define what we're doing here with this discipline issue. We're going to hear the shepherd who sought us and found us and freed us. If you think about it, if you're a Christian, you have been freed through correction. The correction of the gospel, right? It has saved your life. And so Jesus is going to help us to understand how to lovingly intervene in one another's lives. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And I wanted to explain the context of our passage actually before we read it. Matthew 18. I'm teaching out of the English Standard Version. There's some in the lobby. If you didn't bring one this morning, feel free to grab one. Um, I want to dive into the context a little bit because it'll help us understand what our verses mean. See, every, every text lives in an environment, right, in the Bible. Every passage that we read has a certain surrounding that helps us understand what the writer actually meant when he wrote it. And so our passage this morning is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, but those verses are in a context. And so in chapter 18, the disciples, uh, it starts off with them pursuing greatness, of course, um, and Jesus upends their idea of greatness by exalting a little child. He starts this talk of a little one that is going to carry through the first 14 verses of Matthew 18. And Jesus takes the purity of his people so seriously that he says to tempt and draw away one of these little ones with sin, it'd be better if you had a huge boulder tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Safe to say from that that Jesus is protective of his people, right? This is something he takes seriously. Don't mess with the shepherd's sheep. And he's saying that because sin is disastrous. If you keep reading in verses 7 through 9, you'll find that sin is this entangling and destructive thing that, that Jesus says to get rid of any kind of supplier of sin, even if it's your own hand or your own eye, to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand and throw it away. He says, heaven with one eye is better than hell with two. And he uses this kind of extreme, kind of sickening language in order to illustrate sin's true danger. Because sin's first lie is always, it's not that big of a deal. And so Jesus undercuts that in verses 7 through 9. Well, he continues in 10 through 14 showing concern about these little ones which is kind of code for his disciples in our text. And so in 10 through 14, he describes there's one sheep that's, that's vulnerable, that's wandering and it's straying. And it says that who would not leave the 99 and go and search for the one who's astray? In verse 13, and if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And this is the verse that kind of propels into our section this morning in verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the heartbeat behind verses 15 through 20. How is it that we pursue a wandering and lost sheep that begins lost within the flock and slowly starts to wander away? So, that's our context, that's our question, how do God's people protect and pursue lost sheep? How do we reflect this father who, will, who is insistent that he not lose even one? How does the church reflect that 
And that's what we're going to find in verses 15 through 20. So why don't you stand uh, as we prepare to read God's Word in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Here's what God's Word says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You can be seated. So, how do we seek straying sheep? We're going to break it down into confronting with increasing force. Final result for the repentant being excommunication and the authority and presence of Jesus on earth. Two quick caveats before we jump into this confronting with increasing force. You'll notice that Jesus' words begin with, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you. You know, before we can look at how to intervene, we must ensure that sin has actually occurred in the first place, right? It's... It's possible that a person's words were hurtful because they were accurate or they were true. It's possible your perceived injury is merely your pride struggling to die. It's also possible that the person is maybe just annoying and not exactly like you. And we kind of want to color that and shape that into being sinful. There is room within Christianity for differences of opinion and conviction and those things, and the Scriptures talk about that. So, locking the bathroom door or spilling something in the fridge or getting angry or voting for a certain candidate or being late all the time or liking a certain sports team, these things are not Matthew 18 worthy, okay? So, I just need to say that um, for those of you who might take up that cause quickly. Um, I think a helpful verse in correcting and helping us find our way is Proverbs 17.9. that says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See, there, there's, there are times when actually surfacing offense is not helpful. Um, and we need to use judgment uh, when those times are. If it's affecting our relationship, if it's something they're blind to and it's clearly affecting them, we need to be discerning in that. So just be careful before you go to correct someone else. Spend some time praying about that, making sure that you're not the one who maybe needs the correction. Caveat two, uh, love needs to be our motive. Okay, if we're tempted to make the sins of another person uh, known or public um, just out of spite or revenge, then we're not operating in love. Anger is a very blinding emotion. And we have to, it, it could do really wonderful things in Scripture. Anger does, God's anger does incredible things in the Bible. 
But our anger can do terrible things as well. So we must be discerning and we must hit the pause button sometimes to pray or read Galatians 6, which helps us kind of sift through some questions like, am I able to confront this person with gentleness? Am I subjecting myself to temptation by bringing this to this person now? Am I grieved by their sin and willing to help them bear it? Am I more invested in their good or my own anger? So, two caveats. Has sin actually occurred? And is love our motive? But clearly Matthew 18 makes it clear that there are times when we, it's appropriate to, to go to someone to talk about their sin. First he says to do it in private. You know, the way that the shepherd seeks the sheep in Matthew 18 is in love. He wants them back and he wants them safe. And yet in Matthew 18, we know that sin is still heinously offensive to God, right? But consider how God has dealt with his grievances against us. I mean, if you just think about percentages, how much of my own sin against God has he dealt with me in private? Versus maybe needed to use an outside person to communicate it to me. It's amazing that God does that when you really think about what our sin deserves. But God uses loving discretion, and we ought to as well. We're children trying to disown Him, and He's still careful and discreet. So, by commanding us to go to the other person, Jesus actually gets us involved in the helping of that person. Isn't that interesting? That the person wronged is in some way called to be the person who serves the person who wronged them. And that's why we need patience and wisdom in this. But don't you find it easier to talk about the sins or shortcomings of a person with other people first? I mean, if we're honest, that's a lot simpler and a lot easier, right? Because it doesn't cost us anything. It's a lot more straightforward. But when we've got to go to the person themselves, then we have to be involved and we have to care and we have to listen and do things that are harder to do. But when we're just trying to form an agreement committee, it's easier and it doesn't cost us as much. So, Jesus is saying this because he knows our tendencies. We need to go directly to the person and address them personally about this. And we see this actually happening in the New Testament where the body of Christ is doing this. I mean, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, For even if I made you, made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. And he says, as I, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. That's what his letter did to them. This confrontation that happened. Now, we see the goal... If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is a word that can be used to actually be financial in some ways. It's like the return on an investment. Now, it's not an exact parallel to what's going on here, obviously, but this idea that you've gained them back. We can rejoice in the repentance. They're back in the fold. They're out of danger it says, if he listens to you, which doesn't mean he could kind of regurgitate what you said, but it means that he or she is actually listening and applying and understanding and acting on and responding to 
what you're saying to that, to that person in that confrontation. There's an appropriate response. Now, sometimes that's not always immediate. You know, sometimes we expect that to happen in the moment. Sometimes there's a bit of a process to that. If you think about your own, how God has confronted your own sin and how sometimes it takes round one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then like the ninth time, we're like, oh, now I, I actually see what you're talking about, right? Sometimes that, that happens in how we confront people. So I don't think we walk into that confrontation with an expectation that everything changes immediately. I think we need to be discerning in that and to let that settle a bit. But here we see Jesus' very first clear step. How do we seek out the wanderer, the person who's lost? We expose the sin of, of them with patience, discernment, courage, and love. We do it privately, ready to serve the person who's wronged you. That's step number one. But as we go on, we see that he may not listen. And so verse 16 says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. See, Jesus actually refers back to a, a Mosaic law principle when it comes to confrontation. That, and that's always, um, it's helpful to have outside confirmation of what's going on. If you have your own vendetta and you don't see it, other people who are mature, who you call into the situation, will hopefully see that. So it avoids kind of a petty dispute problem that we can have in the situation. This also means that, that to bring one or two others along, that the nature of the sin really does need to be discernible. You know, if I said, well, Susie, I can tell that you know, the, the motivations of your heart are, are really envious. Well, how, how would I exactly go about putting my finger on that? And, how would, and by bringing other people into the room on that situation, how would that exactly... Help. There needs to be some kind of way that this sin is manifesting itself. It's discernible. It's, it's noticeable. It's, it's something that people can say, yeah, I actually I see what, what's being said there. Again, the goal is restoration, right? That outside perspective is kind of undercutting the deceitfulness of sin. And so removing others or by involving others removes... Uh, kind of the anger of the offended is the only way that, that this is happening. Now, when we do that, we need to use discretion in doing that. So if someone sins against you, picking their like two greatest enemies to join you to confront them is not the best idea, right? There needs to be, uh, the people who we bring into that loop need to be mature enough to be able to handle that, to be confidential with that, to be discerning about that, to be prayerful about that. Maybe we, we pursue people who have a, a special in with that person's life or a special role or influence. Maybe they're in proximity. Maybe there's a maturity to them. Maybe there's, um, there's something about them that will contribute to the situation that will help the person see what they need to see. It has to be the criteria that we're using. A lot of times elders or, or ministry leaders are brought in at this point. But again, the goal is repentance. And if this, this small group of just two or three can, can be the ones to bring about that understanding, to add weight to the truthfulness of this charge, then Jesus says you should do that. But notice in verse 17, the rejection of that counsel kind of ramps up a little bit. It's not just not listening. 
verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, there's a, once you're rejecting now the outside counsel of other people, there's a more serious tone to what's happening. Notice that this isn't saying, well, that there are three or four sins that you do this with and everything else. It's the, the, the attitude and the, the posture of the person's heart who's being rebuked is the issue. Make sure, make sure to really be clear on that. The lack of willingness to repent on the part of the person who is confronted, that is what prevents anything restorative from happening. But the second that happens in the church of Jesus Christ, everything changes. Whether, regardless of what kind of sin it is. But a person's attitude towards correction, towards their sin, their willingness to see, that is the fundamental issue. And that can also lead to a sense of helplessness. Because you'll find if you do this enough that you can't make people see who don't want to see. And you wish you could. I wish you could say it in just the right way or, or have uh, a quote from a smart enough book or, or to have the, the right example or to have these magical words. But we know where conviction comes from, right? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And so we're instruments in this, but we must not misunderstand our role or our place. We are not God. And we never are in this process. So we have to be Discerning about this. Now, at the same time that the attitude is the focus, there, there do seem to be sins that, that surface in the New Testament, that persistent sins that are repeatedly referred to as ones that lead to this kind of thing. So the, a more flagrant public defying of the Lord Jesus, a, a more blatant tarnishing of his name, division and those kinds of things are more cited as, as examples for why confrontation eventually gets to this level. So, if he refuses to listen to even that small group, tell it to the church. And at this point, the heart of this sinful person is resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It could be the original person's way off base. It could be they didn't choose the right people to be involved in that, and they're all wrong. But as that circle grows out wider and wider, eventually, there has to be some acknowledgement that, that really... And then we'll see this in verses 18 through 20, that it's really Christ who is correcting the person. It's really Christ who's directing them. It's one thing to, re- to sin and resist correction initially. It's another to get to the point where you won't listen and submit to the testimony of God's people or the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Saved people are not perfect people, but we are a repenting people. And that marks the follower of Jesus is a willingness to humble yourself and to listen and to repent. Now, when it says, tell it to the church, what does that mean? It means the local body of believers that the person belongs to. Again, the purpose behind this is restoration. So the people who are, who are the church that's being told is expected to take a role in that coming up uh, in just a few phrases. 
And so those who are going to be called on to, to treat this person like a Gentile or a tax collector, if they don't repent, that's who it's referring to. The local body of believers who are in a position to help and add to that confrontive force. You tell it to the church. And notice what it says after that. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, do you see here how it's just ramping up? Let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Again, refusal, even the whole group. This is an extremely hard heart. The opportunities are being missed to, to humble himself or herself. And so it says, and it, these are all imperatives, these are all commands in the Greek in the, Matthew 18. Jesus, Jesus is not suggesting things in this text. He's commanding us, let him be to you, or identify him as, you could say, a Gentile and a tax collector. And that, those descriptors basically mean to view him as a person who's not in Christ. And to relate to him or her as, as a person uh, in a, with the seriousness of the situation in mind. Okay? You're, not, you're not joking around and acting casually around people who are in grave danger. You're saying things like, watch out, or duck, or things like that. And so that's the tone of the relationship. If, if even the church and the witness of the church is not enough to lead to the person's repentance, and we're told to, to treat them as if they're not in Christ, and to do all that we can to point them back to this essential step of repentance. It doesn't mean we despise the person. It doesn't mean we treat them like an enemy. That would not be reflective of Christ. But the goal of this final step is to bring clarity, right, to the person, to the church, to the world, about what it means to identify with Jesus Christ. It's saying the church can no longer vouch by your claim to be attached to Jesus because of the way you're living. We serve one master. We don't serve two. And if you love sin and you want to love Jesus and you want those two worlds to, to mesh the church is stepping in and saying, no, they don't mesh. That's essentially what the church is doing. It's trying to clarify. This is most clear in 1 Corinthians 5, a, a case where sexual immorality has taken over a person's life. And Paul writes, rebuking the Corinthians, not just the man, but the Corinthians for their unwillingness to act. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. And I love what he says, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. You could say, or sister. Meaning brother or sister in the Lord. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. So the phrase in there that's important is bears the name brother. The person is still wanting to attach their name to Christ while living however they desire. And that's where the church has to step in, sadly, but with conviction and say, no, 
No. You'll notice, even in this extreme step of excommunication, that that's taken for the good of the person. Notice uh, what it said that uh, in verse 5, actually earlier, I didn't read it, but Paul said, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And what that means is, is, is by putting him out and saying, we can no longer testify that you are a follower of Christ. We don't pretend to know the, your motivations of your heart, but what we see is, is in conflict with what the Scriptures teach about what a Christian is. And so in that way, by putting you out, it's this language of handing him over to Satan. But even that extreme step is done for the destruction of the flesh. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, similar language. Why would he do that? That they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a purpose to this. This isn't we're sick of you. This isn't we despise you. This is we will do everything in our power to point you to what you need to see. That's what this is. So disciples of Jesus, we love Jesus most, right? We don't serve two masters. That's incompatible. And so this is, this is the heart of a person who's chronically unrepentant. They're persistent. This is not the first time the person has realized that they have a certain problem. Or This is not a person even who struggles with repetitive sin. Okay, This is a person who doesn't see or care about the problem. And there's a massive difference. Last, in verses 18 through 20, we see the authority and presence of Jesus on earth in the church. And the tone of Christ's words in this passage are just dripping with authority. Again, in verse 18, he wants to make sure we're listening. Truly I say to you, and again, at Uh, In the middle of that, amen, truly, truly. Like, listen, listen, listen. And he's, he's, he's warning us. He wants us to pay careful attention to what he's saying because it's actually him who's bringing the discipline in this situation. We wouldn't separate the, the responsibility of the body in responding to the commands of the head and of our own physical bodies, and we don't want to do that with the church either. We don't want to go rogue in this. We really have to be careful and discerning and prayerful and wise about how it is that we, we live out this text. So Jesus is saying, like, listen up, pay attention. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth or prohibit or restrict, you could say, it will be so in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Loose meaning permit or allow. Now, there are examples of churches doing discipline wrong, but Jesus is saying that when you're at this level, if if all things are on track and all things are being done from a pure perspective, that the earthly actions of Christ's church are reflecting the heavenly attitude towards the situation. That's how serious this is. We know this because Matthew 16 uses similar language of binding and loosing. It's the only other place that these two are put together in chapter 16, verses 19, when Jesus says, uh, 
to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same language, same idea. It starts with Peter, but then in our passage in Matthew 18, really that authority is given to the entire church. The keys of the kingdom is this idea of exercising discipline within the church. Keys allow people in and keep people out. And so Jesus is extending his own authority to a thoughtful, prayerful process that he's spelling out with the church. So the apostles were the ones who guarded and and invited people, but the gospel, right? That's the door in. And they were the ones who exercised discipline all throughout the New Testament church. And we see that in Paul and other elders. There's lots of different examples in the New Testament for how this goes down. So there's lazy people in 2 Thessalonians 3 who are unwilling to work. There's a man sleeping with a family member in 1 Corinthians 5. There's false teachers who are spreading lies in 2 Timothy 2 and 2 John. There's divisive people in Titus 3 and Romans 16. There's people who ignore the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians. And so this authority, this this discipline that Jesus entrusts to the church is being practiced by the apostles and by the elders that follow. And I don't know about you, but as a person who's um, been involved in these kind of situations at times, it is such a comfort to know that Jesus is present. To know that the authority by which steps are being taken are his authority and not mine or anyone else's. It's so important that Jesus is at the center of what is happening in this scene that he makes it very clear. When you gather for this purpose, I'll be with you. See, the church does have power. The church does have authority, but it is through the power and the authority of Christ in obedience to him. That's where it comes from. And that's this often misquoted verse for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That has a context. It's talking about discipline. It's not, it's not like a Hallmark magnet to put on your fridge. That's not what this verse is. Jesus is saying, when, when your intent and your purpose is lined up with what I've instructed you to do, even if there are two or three of you, I will make sure to be present among you. I will make sure to have my authority exercised in a way that, that reflects me well. This is to help those of us who would be quick to dismiss the church. It's sobering, but it makes sense, right? If we reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, then these kind of steps make sense. Now, while it's true that we are to discipline out of love, and that's always the motivation, there's other reasons in the Scriptures for doing this. One is to protect the church. That sin does spread. It has a corporate effect on the body that's palpable and real. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 compares the sin of this sexually immoral man to that of leaven that finds its way through the whole lump of dough. Remember when Peter's favoritism is rebuked by Paul because it was having an effect on others. Remember that? In 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20, it says to rebuke elders on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
But it says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. See, there's secondary effects to this. That's why Jesus has said, I can remember in a situation down in L.A., a church I was a part of, we had to discipline an elder. And it was very, very difficult. It was heartbreaking. I was a junior high leader at the time. This man had a, a junior high daughter. She was in the seventh grade. So we had to walk with her through the whole process. And to just sit there in that meeting. But I'll tell you what. Driving home from that meeting, we talked about sin in our lives. In the weeks to follow, we saw the ripple effects of needing to be publicly warned about the dangers of sin in even another person's life. And so these commands are, are for the benefit of the person who's being disciplined, but they are also beyond that. For the holiness and the purity of the church at large, to preserve the glory and honor of Jesus, to make the bride beautiful. So there are secondary reasons. Let's, let's talk about some implications for this. We're actually going to celebrate communion together. And I'll explain why. <laughs> I want us to notice two things just in terms of the implications of this passage. One, I want you to notice the heart of God in this. And two, I want you to notice how the heart of God expresses itself amongst the people of God. Three things we're just going to cycle back around. We'll talk about with the heart of God and then the people of God. When it comes to the heart of God, we see that His grace is relentless. His grace is relentless. We see that God is uncompromising. And we see that God is forgiving. In regards to being relentless, you know, it would be easy for God to crunch the numbers of shepherding this flock and think, I just lost 1%. Why not just focus on the 99%? Surely they'll replace themselves. I mean, I've got a prodigal child here who refuses to listen, who couldn't be less interested in what I want. And it would be so easy for him to walk away in this situation, but he pursues and rebukes and applies this fatherly care in ways that just humble us. He doesn't throw his hands up. He, he applies increasing discipline with as much discretion as possible. And he sends messenger after messenger after messenger. He even sends his own son. So our God is relentless. But our God is also uncompromising. You notice in all this pursuit and wooing and, and desire of the Father that he never compromises his holiness. He will not tolerate his son's uh, wish for self-destruction. He will not grant that. He will not add an addendum to the gospel or compromise his purity. It means something to attach your name to the reputation of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the glory of Jesus Christ, God does not budge an inch. He is uncompromising in that. He is holy. But what's astounding about that is the third thing, that, it, that he's willing to forgive. See, he won't give an inch when it comes to his glory, but he'll become a man and suffer and die so that he won't give an inch 
in regards to his glory. And no matter how far the people in the scriptures or, or the people throughout the history of the church go, all that he asks them to do is to turn around. It doesn't matter if they're 300 miles off. In the next nation, it's where they're facing that matters the most. And that is his heart concern. Are you trusting me or not? Are you agreeing with me or not? Are you submitting to the truth or not? It is not how bad is it. It is what is your posture towards me? And because God does not inhabit a specific space or a specific time, because he's everywhere, his sheep can hear his voice at any point. This is the heart of our God. He's relentless. He's uncompromising. He's forgiving. And so these are the things that we want to be reflected in our church as Redemption Hill. We want to be relentless. It means we're going to need to be faithful to the call of Matthew 18 if, if this were to come up. To participate in this process, as uncomfortable and as awkward as that is. That we should do everything in our power to help a person not fall away. Knowing what happens if that person will not turn. So we pay the cost of a sleepless night, of making the call, of even having to withdraw from casual relationship with a person who is under discipline. So we need to be prepared to do that, but we also need to do this in a thousand smaller ways, right? To be relentless in grace towards one another. Maybe it's as simple as becoming a member of the church, so we can fully participate in loving others in this way. In that process, we explain Matthew 18 and explain this so that when it comes time to do something like this, that we know that people know what, what, what this is about and how to do it well. Maybe it's engaging with the church family here to ensure that you're within the protective ministry and the instructions of Matthew 18 and you can help others to do the same. What I mean by this is if, if you're attending sporadically or you're kind of keeping the church at an arm's length, Oftentimes, those are the people who aren't helped or able to be helped by the church family, right? It's easier to keep sin hidden when God's people aren't welcome into your life. And so that week-by-week investment of attending and engaging with others and plugging in, it means that your safety net will be stronger for both yourself and other people. So engaging with the church family. How about addressing minor conflicts? Cuts get infected. And become really serious things if not addressed. And so is, it is with minor conflicts that we have with one another. If you have an issue with a person, go to them. If someone has sinned against you, it's hindering your relationship, they're blind to it, it's affecting them, you need to go to them. We don't want the wound to fester or sin to get a hold of someone. And keeping the peace to avoid conflict is an invitation for the enemy to do greater destruction. Preventative maintenance is always better, right, than dealing with an emergency. So we too can reflect the radical pursuit of our God by, by taking these small steps seriously. We can also be uncompromising in holiness. And and by this I mean let God's word rule over us. We have to use wisdom and discretion in applying his word and his discipline, but we must never be afraid to obey him. 
Have you ever talked yourself out of obeying God? Talked yourself out of confronting a person when you know it needs to be done? We're not serving one another by pretending that we're an exception or that they're an exception. It's easy to look the other way and chalk things up to personality or background or whatever rather than risk things by correcting. But this is why we must let the Word of God rule over us and rule over our relationships. See, we're not just a family to be a family. We're a family for a purpose, a holy purpose. So we must be willing to risk offense to promote holiness in our midst. Maybe it's even in your own time with the Word of God that that's a time where you've positioned mirrors already in your life to see where you're really at with Him. So we too need to be uncompromising in that way. And lastly, we need to be willing to forgive. What's so ironic about it is if, if we're afraid to confront or to correct one another, it also atrophies our ability to forgive each other because those things go hand in hand, right? And if we want to know what street-level forgiveness is like, then we have to be committed to, to talking through issues of sin and experiencing the humbling reality of being forgiven by another person. We'll treasure the gospel more if we do that. And when you actually see the gospel at work and forgiveness. One of the things you need to be aware of in this willingness to forgive is, is Satan's secondary plans for sin. He always has kind of a, another agenda. And one of those is promoting unforgiveness amongst God's people. Forgiving people is difficult. It's not always as straightforward as just jumping in and saying the magic words. We know that. Sometimes it's a long and hard road, but 2 Corinthians 2 actually records an instance where a church family withheld forgiveness from a person who was repentant. And so this means that we need to be cultivating a culture of forgiveness. We have to watch out for that secondary strategy that Satan has to make a church that's willing to discipline a greenhouse for resentment. We've got to be careful with that. You know, it's no accident that right after our passage in Matthew 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Jesus is so wise. And in that parable, if you remember, it, it really presents unforgiveness in all its ugliness. Or the man who is being forgiven millions who wouldn't forgive another man for a few dollars. And that parable is instructive to us because we are always the million dollar debtor. And so this shapes how we treat and how we respond to the sins of other people when we know that about ourselves. So, our prayer, leaving here, I think, is to reflect the relentless heart of our shepherd. To be uncompromising, to be willing to forgive. We have been conquered by his persistence, and we desire to reflect that as well. What better way to remind ourselves of that relentless pursuit than to take communion together. And I'd like to read the passage we normally read out of 1 Corinthians 11, but I want to kind of let you in on the kind of the backstory of this text because there's a really ugly and divided and unhealthy church behind 1 Corinthians 11, if you read it. Um, Paul gives instructions about communion, but, but they're kind of in this context of people who are showing up early to take communion and they're eating it all before the people who were poorer got there. I mean, it's just a total mess. 
Like, just makes me love our church the more I read First Corinthians. But um, I'll read the normal portion, but I want to read the, the verses that immediately follow the text we normally read. For the, and the one we normally read is, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Does that ring a bell? Right afterwards, here's what Paul says. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And listen to this. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the purpose of God's discipline, right? And communion is a unifying act. It's something we're doing together, right? Paul says earlier in chapter 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. This is why when we take communion, we, we invite Christians of our church and other churches to be participants in that, but those who are under discipline, we ask them not to be because they're not acting in unity with the body of Christ and need restoration so that they don't drink judgment on themselves. You might have thought, why in the world do we include that? Well, this passage is why when we do that. So let's enter in this time of communion mindful of one another, eager to preserve the unity of the spirit and the body and the bond of peace. Let us reflect and remember how God's relentless, uncompromising, and forgiving love has paid the cost to make us right with God forever. May his relentless grace create a, a hunger for holiness in us and in the lives of other people as well. Let me pray as we get ready for communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for its refining effect in our lives. And thank you, Lord, that you not only... Um, forgave us of our sin and, and gave us your righteousness in, in one fell swoop through our um, profession of faith and our repentance and belief. But God, you continue to root out and to destroy the sin that lies resident within us. And we give you thanks for that. And God, we pray as we take in this, this heavy passage, this sobering reality of, of what it means to, to intervene for another person in love, both as individuals and as a church. God, I pray you'd help us to keep the cross in view. Help us to be informed by what you have done on it and through it. And may it inform everything that we do and every prayer that we pray in a disciplined process. God, use this time now. Help us to reflect, God, if we are at odds with others in the body, if we are, are not unified in some way, if there's, if there's sin in our lives that we need to examine, God, help us to do that. We want your will. We want you to be glorified, and we want this to be as unifying an act as humanly possible, God, on this side of heaven. So lead us in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.